0: Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About a year and a half ago, I was invited to come up to the Indiana Oklahoma, Indiana Conference and to speak to the pastors of the largest Methodist churches there in their state. The, pa- the conference was going to be held at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. And I was really excited about that because the pastor was um, Rob Fuquay. Rob Fuquay is a friend of mine. I got to know he and his wife Susan when Marsh and I traveled with them on the trip with John Wesley a couple of years ago to go back and to see the history of, of Methodism. They're a wonderful couple and Susan happens to be the daughter of Bishop Wilkie who wrote Disciple Bible Study, if you've ever taken Disciple Bible Study. Well, I was forward to seeing Rob and to being at his church and, and Reverend Phil Greenwald and Reverend Wendy Lambert also went with me and we were able to provide this presentation with slides and and conversations and, and answering questions and, and then we had lunch and continued to have discussions but finally our work was through and we were going to go out to dinner that night with uh, Rob and Susan. We had a few hours to kill in that afternoon and it was Rob who said have you ever been out to the Indianapolis Speedway? I said no. He said you need to go. As a boy growing up back in the '60s, I remember very much watching the Indy 500. I mean, that was back in the day with some wonderful race drivers: Mario Andretti, Bobby and Al Unser, and of course AJ Foyt. AJ Foyt was born and raised in Houston, Texas, so he was the local. He was from my hometown. We were excited. AJ Foyt, this good Texan, racing on this international scene, and and he would win the Indy 500 four times, a record. Now I enjoyed watching the Indy 500, so we said, all right, let's go. So we headed out to the racetrack. Oh, my goodness. I learned so much. Did you know that the Indianapolis Speedway is the largest sports venue in the world? That it can seat 250,000 people? that on the, in, uh, the inside that they can, side the track, they can have another hundred to 150,000 people? That means that you can have 400,000 people there at a race? The track was built in 1909. And when it was built, it was built, first of all, the, the track to be built out of crushed rock. If you think about it, streets weren't really being paved in the United States in 1909. We just had invented the car. And no longer had we gotten the car invented that people wanted to see who could go the fastest. It's kind of a part of our DNA. You get a car, you want to see who's going to win. But that track did not work very well and the organizers, the builders could tell. And so they soon set about replacing that crushed gravel with brick they had to hand lay brick two and a half miles long all the way width of the track one brick at a time and it's why the Indianapolis 500 speedway became known as the brickyard because they raced on that track made of bricks it was that way until 1961 when finally they put asphalt down, and it's the track that it is today. Well, to get to drive out into the infield, oh my goodness, it was amazing. We headed to the museum, and I got to tell you, it was a disappointment that I only had one hour to be there in that museum, because the museum was awesome. There were so many race cars of all the generations, and every race car told a story. They'd have a little plaque beside it telling you who had won with this car or something about the race. I mean, I could have stayed there for days looking at all this really neat stuff. Finally, it was going to close after about an hour. We had to meet Rob and Susan for dinner, so we headed on back and got to him with dinner. I said, man, that was amazing. He said, you know, racing's really big here, obviously, in Indianapolis. He said, it was a year ago that I did a sermon series on the flags of racing. And I said, the flags of racing? And he said, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody thinks about the checkered flag when you come to the end of the race that gets waved when you win, when you finish and cross the finish line. But actually, there's lots of flags that tell the drivers different things to do during the race. And he said, so I I had a whole sermon series on the flags of racing and what our faith tells us we ought to be doing in the race of life. We left that dinner and we all said, we're doing that one. (laughs) That's a great idea. So we came back a year and a half ago and started working on this sermon series and decided we were going to look at six of the flags in racing. And I chose specifically, I wanted to start this Sunday after Easter because it seemed to me that the disciples had just come through a time in their life when there had been such disappointment. Their dreams had died. They'd gone through failure. They had known grief and pain. And now they're on the other side. And they've got to figure out how they're going to run the race of life. I believe it's where you and I find ourselves on the other side of Easter. For all those weeks of Lent we talked about disappointments, failures, grief. What do we do on the other side of Easter? How do you run the race of life? I wanted to do this series because it became obvious to me that in the Bible there's all kinds of scriptures that use races as the, um, the analogy for life. The Bible's always talking about what does it mean to run the race of life? And so those are the passages that we're going to look at over these next six weeks as we look at these six different flags. I chose to start it now because we're going to wind up ending the sermon series on Memorial Day weekend. It's when we take the time as a family of faith to remember All the people in this family of faith who have crossed the finish line. They've crossed the finish line and entered the kingdom of heaven. And we give God thanks for them. And it also happens to be the same day that they run the Indy 500. So, I wanted us to start today. And today I want us to begin by looking at the green flag. For the green flag is the flag that they wave to start the race. Now, Rob Fuquay told us one of the things that had inspired him was back when he was the pastor at Long's Chapel, no relation, Long's Chapel there in Lake Junaluska, North Carolina, he had a friend who loved NASCAR racing and had a suite, a private suite there in Charlotte. And so his friend invited him to go to the NASCAR race and to go there in Charlotte. And he said he had always heard that the NASCAR races were so loud. But he was grateful that he was going to be in a a private suite, all enclosed. He figured that would help a lot. And sure enough, they got there, and he got up there in the suite, and the cars were out there kind of going around the track, warming up. And he said, it wasn't bad at all. It wasn't bad. And I even said to my friend, you know, this isn't near so bad. And his friend said, wait till they drop the flag." And sure enough, another time around, and as they came to the start line, they waved the green flag, and he said, I felt it before I heard it. He said the entire box shook. He said my chair was vibrating. It was so loud you couldn't speak to my friend next to me and hear each other. What had happened was they'd been out there just kind of coasting. But when they dropped the green flag, it was full throttle. The race was on. And the question occurred to me, are we coasting? Are we just kind of coasting, going round lap after lap, day after day, week after week? Year after year. We're just kind of coasting, doing what's comfortable, making the laps, or you're running full throttle. Now, when I say to run full throttle, I'm not saying can you make sure you cram even more into your life and get even more into your day? No, what I'm saying to run full throttle, I believe, means you're doing the things that matter. You're doing the things that are important. Are you doing what Christ asked out of you? With passion. Giving your very best. Are you learning and growing? Are you running full throttle? Or have you decided the coast? It's what I think our scripture lesson was about this morning, this letter to the Hebrews. You know, it's one of the more interesting letters in the Bible. It's the only letter in the Bible that really spends all these chapters arguing a specific theological point. It's dealing with Christology, the nature of Jesus. And it's very intricate and woven together. And it's the longest book that does that in our Bible fascinating thing is we don't know who wrote this letter to the Hebrews. I mean, some people used to say, well, it was Paul, but but we feel certain it was not Paul. We do believe it was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We believe it must have been an intellectual because this is such a complex Christological treatise that's being shared. It had to probably be a leader in the church. Someone that people would listen to. The fascinating thing is, we don't know who the letter was to. When Paul wrote his letters, it would be the letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Philippians. You know exactly who Paul was writing to. Here we have the letter to the Hebrews. Again, most scholars seem to believe that that he was probably writing to a group in Rome. Christians in Rome who were very intellectual to be able to understand the arguments, that they had been Jewish and they had become Christian, and now they had been trying to live what they believed Christ was calling them to do and to try to win the world for Christ. But as the years had gone on and there had been the pain and the failures and the struggles, this group in Rome seemed to be slowing down coasting. It seemed as if they were in danger of falling away. And so this author writes to this group of intellectual Christians in Rome who had been so committed and now were coasting and he writes to them to say, run with perseverance the race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. He seems to be saying to them, when you read through the book of Hebrews, don't quit, run the race of life. I believe it's the message that he not only gave to the early Christian church, I believe it's the message he'd want to give to each of us today. As we live on this side of Easter, I want us to look at the passage, and there's just two things I want to say to you today. First of all, I like it when the author says, run with perseverance the race that is set before you because you and I don't always get to choose the race that is set before us. Life happens. We all know that there winds up being those times of failure, struggles with our health, losses of jobs, things that happen in the world around us. There is failure. People die. There is grief. You don't always get to choose the race that is set before you. But you do get to choose if you run with perseverance, if you don't quit. For the disciples, when we stop and think about all that they went through in that Holy Week, the denial of Jesus, running away, betraying Him, quitting on Him, then the grief of Him dying. They're on the other side of Easter. There's no doubt the disciples had begun to coast. Let's go fishing. That's what Peter said. I'm going fishing. They were just going to make the lap doing the same things. Jesus was going to say, no, you can start again. The green flag it is waved to start the race but we know that in every race especially 500 miles there's going to be an accident there'll be a crash there'll be some with car trouble Somebody's going to leak oil sooner or later other flags are going to come out a yellow flag we're going to learn about that slow down red flag we're going to have to stop well it's going to happen sometime in the race but once everything all kind of gets fixed back up, then you're kind of moving out there coasting and they'll give you the green flag again. The green flag will get waved several times in a race. It's used to restart the race after we've gotten on the other side of the problem. I believe the disciples were at that point of a restart. They had followed Jesus with their passion and their best efforts and their commitment And then we had Holy Week and the failure, and Jesus is taken from them. They're on the other side coasting. And the question is are you ready for a restart? To run full throttle? The Boston Marathon took place just uh, last Monday. You know what? What a special time! We had several members of our church um, go and run in the Boston Marathon. Next week is the biggest race here in Oklahoma City as we run the Oklahoma City Marathon. And we remember all of those who were affected by the bombing of the Murrah Building so many years ago. Well, if you were watching and you watched about the Boston Marathon, you read the newspapers, you saw the news, you'll know the big story this year about the Boston Marathon was all about Catherine Switzer. Now, I hope when you saw the story, you perked up and you went, Yes, because last year when we had the sermon series Game Changers, I told you about Catherine Switzer. I would not have known her known anything about it if it hadn't been back for that last sermon series. But I was watching the news, and I saw the big news this year was about her. It's because she was running the Boston Marathon, and she was 70 years old. 70 years old, she ran the marathon Finished in a time of 4 hours, 44 minutes, and 31 seconds. But what was big was this was the 50th anniversary of her historic run in 1967. You Remember I told you about that last year? She was a game changer. It turned out back in 1967, women were not allowed to run marathons. They were not allowed to run long-distance races of any kind because everybody knew they couldn't do that. It was impossible. Women were way too dainty to be able to run a marathon or long distances. So they weren't allowed to. But Catherine was running at Syracuse. She was 20 years old. She was a journalism major and she loved running. And so she was training with the boys cross-country team. And she then told the coach, I want to run a marathon. He said, you can't run a marathon. It's not possible she said I can and so he said if you can run a marathon in practice I'll make sure you get to run she ran a distance of a marathon so when it came time for the Boston Marathon she went and signed up she signed up as K.V. Switzer she liked using her initials kind of like J.D. Salinger she, she is going to be that kind of a writer so she signed up under K.V. Switzer they didn't have a place on the form that said male or female because they knew only males would run So they didn't ask the question. It wasn't actually a rule that said you can't run, but everybody knew you couldn't run and that women would not run in the Boston Marathon. But she got signed up. They didn't catch it. She went there that day. It was snowing. It was snowing that morning, so she had on her baggy sweats, and she went and she signed in, and they gave her her number, 261. She now had an official number, pinned it on, went to the starting line, they shot the gun, and she was off. She ran several miles before an official was looking and went, oh my goodness, that's a lady. They passed the word around, and soon the official, Jock Simple, who was the one who organized the Boston Marathon, spotted her and ran out onto the course and grabbed at her, grabbed at her, numbers and shouted to her, get out of my race and give me those numbers. Catherine was so startled when she turned around, she said it was the meanest, angriest face I had ever seen. She was shocked as he's grabbing her and grabbing her for for her bib and thank goodness her boyfriend was running with her, Tom Miller, and that he was a football player. And when he saw what was happening, he threw a block into Jock. I actually think it was a clip. (laughs) But nobody threw a flag. But Jock went flying, literally airborne, over into the ditch. Catherine whirled around and tried to regain her senses and she kept on running. And she finished running the Boston Marathon, thereby becoming the first woman to officially register and run the Boston Marathon in 1967. She didn't think that much about it at the end of the race. They got in the car to drive back home to Syracuse, and it was an all-night drive at 2 o'clock in the morning. They stopped at an all-night diner. The morning edition of the newspaper was out, and there were these pictures of her being attacked on the race course. The whole thing had happened right in front of the press trailer. They got them all. These pictures, they just went around the world, literally around the world in newspapers, starting this huge response of outrage that women were being treated like this and being told they couldn't run a marathon or play sports, that they'd be treated like that? That was back in 1967. Fifty years later, this past Monday, she ran the marathon again. It's really kind of fascinating because the Boston Marathon had 30,074 people registered to run. 13,696 were women. It is said that of all the women of all the races that women now make up about 60% of all the runners. Because she ran and she crossed the finish line there in Boston this year, they decided to retire 261. The number she wore 50 years ago. They now have retired and no one will ever get to run with that number again in the Boston Marathon. It turned out because of this happening, immediately after it happened, she decided to start 261 Fearless. It was running clubs for women all across the United States and literally all around the world trying to encourage women to say, you can do anything you dream. Be fearless. You can run. I saw the interviews with her this year as she had crossed the finish line. Lots of pictures, people asking her about it. How did you feel 50 years ago when Jock attacked you and surprised you so? What did you feel? And what she said was, I knew I had to finish or no one would believe women could run long distances. I was serious about running and I couldn't let fear stop me. 261, fearless. For 50 years, women have been joining running clubs around the world to find a sense of camaraderie and hope. They asked her, do you have a message to women today? And she said, I want to tell them running is not about time and performance, but about hope, encouragement, and determination. My message to young girls you can do so much more than you can imagine. Take a step, then two, then ten, then you run a marathon. If you can run a marathon, you can do anything. Never quit. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Are you coasting or you're running full throttle? Maybe in the light of Easter, we need a restart. Secondly, the author says, Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Remember, he says, You're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, I believe it's what's being asked if you and I are going to run full throttle is we are going to seek to live the calling that Christ has for us that is different from living whatever makes you happy. It's not about you doing what just makes you happy. The question is are you doing what you believe Christ has called you to do? I believe you will find meaning and significance and joy in doing that. But if you really stop to think, what is Christ calling you to do with your life right now? Are you seeking to grow and to learn? and to live with passion, and to give your best. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. It's about you and I taking seriously what does it mean to follow Christ. It's about recognizing that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. We've just come through Easter and we've thought about all of our loved ones who have died, They're a part of your cloud of witnesses. They're a part of what's made you who you are. It's about being a part of a family of faith in Rome, here. It's about your friends and family. Whoever your cloud of witnesses is, you have a cloud of witnesses who are encouraging you so that you take seriously God's call for your life. And when you give yourself to that wholeheartedly, then you're running full throttle. You know, I was watching the other day on TV and saw an advertisement for Chuck Todd and Meet the Press. And I I like Chuck Todd, but, you know, when I saw it, it suddenly made me think about Tim Russert. I hadn't thought about Tim Russert in years. You remember Tim Russert? He was the moderator for Meet the Press for 16 years. He was a um, a TV journalist, so well-respected, so successful. Tim Russert was a man of great faith. He was a good Catholic, very involved in his church. I couldn't believe it. I went back and looked it up. It was nine years ago now that Tim Russert, who was 58 years old, had a heart attack and was gone that fast. One day at work, 58, heart attack, he was gone. He was such a good man. Well, he told some stories. I I got several of his books that I went back and read because I would liked them so much. And he told a story of how he grew up. Grew up in Buffalo, New York. And he grew up in a family that was very poor. It was a good family, a family that encouraged, a family that loved, a family that worked hard. They were good Catholics. They were in church. But they were poor. Grew up in the south side of Buffalo. And he went to Catholic schools. And he said, when he got to junior high, he said, you know, he just had a lot of energy, and he was so energetic that he was always just getting into trouble, mischievous trouble, not not bad things, just always being mischievous and getting on the teachers' nerves and getting in trouble. And he said, until he ran into Mary, Sister Mary Lucille. Sister Mary Lucille said one day she came to him and said, Tim, I want us to start a newspaper, and I want you to be the editor. And I want you to get your friends to be reporters, and we'll write the copy, and I'm going to teach you how to raise the money and how to get it published, and then we're going to distribute it. He said it was a huge project. Sister Mary Lucille was no dummy. Work him, run him in the ground. He will have no time to be mischievous. He will have no time nor energy and sure enough, I mean, she got them working. It consumed all their time and effort. And, and they soon found that he was not being bad at all. He loved what he was doing. And then President Kennedy was assassinated. They put out a special edition on President Kennedy. And they sent one copy to Jacqueline Kennedy and then Bobby Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson And within a few months, they received handwritten notes back from all three saying thank you for such a special edition that honored President Kennedy. And Tim Russert said, when I got those notes, it just touched my soul and I knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. This was what God was calling me to do. And he began to give his all. When he got ready to graduate from junior high, well, Sister Mary came to him and said, you've got to go to Cassius High School. It was a Catholic high school in downtown Buffalo. It's where the rich kids went. Only a couple of kids from the south side ever seemed to make it to there. She made sure he took his aptitude test, that he got an interview, and he got accepted, and then she made sure he got a scholarship, and he went to this high school where he would get a great education. Without Sister Mary, soon he found himself kind of, kind of coasting, kind of just doing the same things, day after day, week after week. Soon he was mischievous and getting into trouble again. Until he ran into Father John Stern. Father John Stern had used to be a golden gloves boxer until he heard God call him to be a Jesuit priest. And he said, one day he was cutting up and just making trouble when he ran into Father John who grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and he began to read him the right act. And he said, I will never forget that day because I said, Father John, can't you have some mercy? And Father John said, Russert, mercy is for God. I bring discipline. (laughs) He said, he did. and He said, it's what I needed. I needed discipline. He brought the discipline. And so he would graduate high school and, of course, go on to college. And he became so successful as a a television journalist. What I loved about Tim Russert was he didn't forget. What he started doing as an adult was each year he would throw a banquet. He would pay for the whole thing, took money out of his own pocket, And he created the Sister Mary Father John Award in which he offered that anybody could nominate a Catholic teacher there in Buffalo. And then he would choose the winner of the Sister Mary or the Father John Award. always a man and always a woman each year. And then Sister Mary and Father John were at the banquet. And then these two teachers would be at the banquet. And then they brought the students who had nominated them, who would talk about them and how they were then blessing their lives. And he did it year after year. Because he wanted these young people to understand are you finding God's call for your life? Are these teachers helping you to find your call, God's claim on your life? To where you're wanting to give your best. And then he wanted these students to understand you're surrounded by all these people, these teachers, your family, friends, people who want to help you be who God's calling you to be. And he did it out of gratitude for the people who had been there for him. He did it every year. the author of the Hebrews said, let us run the race, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. You're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Are you coasting? Are you running at full throttle? In the light of Easter, maybe we need a restart. The good news is, I believe, Jesus is waving the green flag. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.